This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the distinguished Simon Belanger. So this is going to be a, a better episode than yesterday's l- listening experience for two reasons. One, uh, I don't sound sick. And two, it doesn't sound like I'm in a tunnel because the audio is going to be better. But if you listen to Thursday's show, it sounded like I was in a tunnel. We just fixed it and posted the better version of it. So if you want to go back and listen to it, uh, y- you can now. But uh, let's let's do this episode, Simon. We have... Most of the episode is going to be talking about selling stocks, which we don't talk about enough. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think, uh, and we've talked about it a couple times, I think, in our three and a half, almost four years doing the podcast now. But uh, I know it's crazy. Does that it's make like, you feel old or what? Uh, I think the gray in my beard makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah, but I think it's good because obviously we're people know we're long term investors, but. I think there are some very valid reasons why you'd want to sell uh, a stock or trim a position. And I think, you know, sometimes I, I know for me is sometimes I just think I want to be a long term investor and that kind of conflicts with selling. And it's easy to lean on you know, just keeping the stock when you're constantly thinking about the long term. But I think what we'll be going over today is there there are some valid reasons why you should consider either selling or trimming a position. And hopefully that will help people making their own decisions in their portfolio. Yeah, that's really good context, right? Because we talk so much about not selling, right? Is is buy right and hold tight because... There's so much news telling you when to sell a stock. I mean, look at look at all the major winners over the past couple decades. You've had massive drawdowns, and the the only mistake on sell on, on any of them was selling them, even when you had those massive drawdowns, because the business is kept executing. However, we're going to talk about our self framework today, and you'll notice a common theme is when those businesses are no longer executing or in a position to maybe not execute. And it has nothing to do with the price sentiment or the market sentiment or what people are saying on CNBC. It has to do with the actual business framework and your framework as an investor. And I think that that's really important. Before we get into the sell framework, I told my my pals over at Blossom Social that uh, I would give them a shout out here uh, for their event. So they're doing an event uh, in Toronto. I'm sorry again for the you know these Toronto events, but from the people who are from from around around the country. But there's another one here Tuesday, August first at 6 p.m. at the Rec Room. Uh, you can go on Eventbrite and search Blossom Social, or go on their app, download their app, Blossom Social. It's like Twitter, but for stocks. I'm on there, and uh, I will be at this event. Uh, I'll be talking on the panel. So that is Tuesday, August 1st. We'll put a link in the show notes or you go on Eventbrite and type in Blossom Investor Social. All right, shall we do it? Yeah, let's do it. I have five points. You have a couple points after? Yeah, I'll probably chime in for a few of your points too. So I think it'll be a fun one. And then we'll finish with uh, just going over the Laurentian Bank strategic review or putting itself up for sale and just bringing some, a little bit of context aside from the headlines that people may have seen. I love how it's called a strategic review. Yeah. It's Sounds always called little... that. <laughs> when a company's about to go, I'm not saying that's the case here, but you know when a company's like clearly on the path to bankruptcy, it's always strategic review. Yeah. It's <laughs> you ever see the office when Michael Scott says he's he's declaring bankruptcy? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> if they ever run that show back, he's going to declare a strategic review. All right. So first one here is more number one here is is more of a reflection actually of your buy framework. And I think this is important because we're going to talk about our self framework. But this first one is a direct mirror and an important process in your actual buy framework. It's something to have in mind when you buy a stock. And this took me I didn't start doing this until I think my eighth or ninth year as an investor. 
And I wish I did this in year one, which is having a clear set of criteria on the specific business that if X happens or Y doesn't happen, I'm willing to move on from the investment idea. So for example, I'm going to try to provide some examples as as we go here, like real life things that I've done. For example, you know, and listeners of the show know, I sold Spotify last year. That's that's with a P, not not shop, but Spotify, the, the music player app. It's an equity I held for around two years. I had a very clear vision for it, what it could be, and the drivers for making better unit economics on the business, namely margin expansion on the gross margins. They pursue other mediums like podcasting, creating original content, this network effect, negotiating power with the labels, and a very highly targeted ads business through their acquisitions, mostly in the podcasting distribution technology. And I watched eight quarters of gross margins stay at exactly 25%. While the management team said, don't worry, the whole time, eight quarters in a row, we know X, Y, Z are going to happen. And now we're like, you know, six, seven quarters later, posts X, Y, and Z happening, and it doesn't budge. It's because the unit economics of the business, right? Like music, they're just kind of capped. And I gave them the benefit of the doubt, and I still do give them the benefit of the doubt because Daniel Eck and the team are are truly exceptional entrepreneurs. But as I sit on the eighth quarterly call, two years later, looking at the numbers, is still the same, and I move on. Now, the important thing here is that I reserve the right to change my mind if the facts change. Uh, If the facts change, I can change my mind. I can change my position. But for now, I want to monitor those facts through my watch list and not as a shareholder. Through my watch list and a a customer, uh, but not as a shareholder. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a really good point there. I did similar when it came to Teladoc, right? Um, I didn't take any rash decisions, but I noticed that things, well, things were changing. They got a big boost from the pandemic, but I held the stock, I think, a couple of years before the pandemic. And unfortunately, there were signs that things like margins, for example, were coming down and there was increased competition. And my thesis that their all-in-one offering would give them a hedge over various competitors was not holding up as well as I thought. So I gave it some time. And like you, I think I gave it almost like five quarters before I took the decision where things were not, you know, recovering as well as management said, and even the growth was slowing down, which was different than what management had said. So I lost some confidence in management too. And uh, unfortunately in the business, so I decided to sell. So I think it's important to be able to change your mind and not being stubborn because your original thesis was probably very good, but it ended up not panging out. And I think being humble, it's a really important trait from investment. And also shows that you're able to be take like kind of cold and calculated decisions when it comes to that and not be emotional. Um, It's great to be emotional in other parts of your life, but in investing, it's probably not the best thing if you want the best returns. True that. You know what it's like? The way I think about this is one bad quarter is like a Cy Young pitcher throwing one bad pitch. If the manager pulls them from the game and they're only on pitch like 58 because they threw up one bad pitch that someone took out of the yard, that's an overreaction from the manager. And you see it in professional sports all the time, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And you see it in professional investing as well. Not just, uh, you know, retail traders acting like this way. You see it across the board. And I think of it like... You know, an MVP pitcher throwing one bad pitch across the plate and changing your position or changing your strategy in that game because of one bad pitch when they could go lights out and strike four more innings out in a row. Right. And and so that's the way you got to think about that is it, it doesn't make it the right move just to react on one one bad quarter or anything. But monitor, right? You know, yeah, exactly. if that pitcher then, you know, his arm clearly is not working, 
th- th- you know, his his commands way off. None of the balls are going across the plate. Then there's something to change there. But but one bad pitch or two bad pitches that doesn't warrant a complete change of strategy. Yeah, and I I would the last thing I would add is we saw with the pandemic, right? These kind of black swan events. I think it's important to to take things into context. And I know a lot of people will have like hard set rules. If there's like a decline in revenue, uh, they'll like sell the company. And I think you have to also just put things into context a little bit because there were a lot of great businesses that had a down year in 2020, but that rebound and there were solid financially because of this once in a lifetime event. And if you're acting just on hard set rules, you could have ended up selling some really good businesses because of that. <laughs> you might've sold your whole portfolio. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, it maybe except Zoom and uh, Teladoc and all those yeah, uh, stocks. Yeah. 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 You would have been buying all the junk that, that actually had a growth year that year. All right. Number two is personally, I exit a position when I have strong conviction that the business is on the wrong side of a long term secular trend. The, and long term is important because if I think that they're on the wrong time of just a short term issue, then that, that's not warrant for, for exiting the business. And you can make a lot of money buying unloved businesses, unloved sectors going against the grain. And so often these things look really, really good in the short term. But on the long-term secular trend, if that business is in structural decline, there is a very, very good chance on a long horizon, you lose money. Now, there are a couple examples of this, right? Like, I sold Allied Property REIT in 2020. Oh, no. Cle- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly, that was a, a very good decision. If we look at, uh, you know, the stock price at, at the time of, of the pandemic happening and where we are today, that's not to say it's not good value here. I think it's a completely different thesis no, on no, today's exactly. price yeah. in completely different thesis what the the yield went from like you know one 1.8 percent to like eight and a half you know mm. from here um and so those are completely different stories but even for me today i still think office is on the long term on a long-term secular decline it, it's not dead it's not going away and you have highlighted that Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with Dan, it's just not my style. And for me, I try not to own positions on the long, on, on long-term secular declines, even if it's, it's not going like it, obviously office is not going to zero, but it is on the, it's not a growth sector. And, uh, for me, that's just the way I invest today. No, I think that's fair. And obviously I think there's some really, um, I'm trying to think of a few right now, some really obvious examples, but um, I'm thinking even not, I guess BlackBerry could be a decent example because they weren't the right kind of secular trend, but they bet too much on their, like, I guess, legacy keyboards, right? Phone keyboards and didn't really get onto the shift that consumers were demanding something without keyboards and yes there were still some that really loved those keyboards but it was a diminishing diminishing kind of percentage of the population and when they finally came out with their first phones that were not fully kind of keyboard and had a touchscreen similar to an iphone um, it was just too late android and iphone really had the lion's share of the market share and they ended up having to pivot and now you know blackberry is a shell of itself at its glory so i think it's kind of a sort of a secular trend shift i guess it's kind of a secular trend within a secular trend maybe or cigarettes yeah so uh you know tobacco stocks that you know most of their portfolio is in traditional smoke cigarettes versus smokeless vapes and and oral uh those those businesses will do a lot better than companies that are mostly just moving volume through cigarettes because that is a secular decline. Uh, you know, the, the, the list goes kind of on and on and on. Uh, and technology 
is is one where within the technology sector, which is so broad, you've just pointed out different trends trends there. Uh, absolutely. All right. Um, number three, an opportunity to own the best. Probably my most common sell decision, where there may be nothing wrong with the business, but an opportunity to increase the quality net net of your portfolio or swing at a fat pitch to own the best in breed can can justify decision making. And decision making on the sell side or or even on the buy side should be sparse with good low portfolio turnover in, in a in in a high quality portfolio of businesses. But I just talked about last week how I sold Moody's for SPGI. Uh, I sold Moody's for S and P. You know, a duopoly on the credit rating agency business. I felt X credit rating agency over the last five years. S&P has built a better asset. In uh, no sense diversifying and fighting my own conviction when there's an opportunity to own the best. So the, the, the thing I don't want to do is diversify, even though today you probably get wonderful returns from Moody's. I have, I'm not going to fight my conviction. Yeah, I think for me, I also have an example of that. So it would have been uh, Digital Realty Trust, where I had um, close to 50-50. That was probably a couple of years ago at this point. And then I ended up selling that position and going for Equinix. Um, Digital Realty Trust, I still like more as a dividend play. So definitely for income seeker that wants some exposure to uh, data reads, uh, you know, a way to get um exposure to tech and also AI, but also get a good dividend. I think Digital Realty Trust makes a, a lot of sense. But for where I'm at, um, Equinix, from all the other perspectives, if you forget about the dividend for a second, for all the other perspective, growth, efficiency, and all that, uh, made more sense. So I ended up shifting my portfolio to Equinix. And by the way, like talk about a stock that's been benefiting from the AI crazes, like kind of under the radar is definitely Equinix because it's been, I mean, it was trading, I think in the low, uh, below 500 bucks a share. And now it's close. It's beyond 800. Um, So there was definitely people being a bit bearish on the overall space. And I think, you know, late last year in October, uh, I think October was probably the bottom, but tech was really, really in a downward spiral. And I think Equinix was affected by that too, but it's really rebounded nicely. I mean, I never panicked. I know, I think you own it too, right? If I remember correctly. I, yeah. I own a small-ish position. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's a good example. When you me. when yeah. you did that, you texted me saying you're going to do that. And I was like, why didn't you do that a while ago? Because <laughs> I, I shared the exact same yeah, sentiment that yeah. Mm-hmm. That Equinix, Equinix's balance sheet was way better. It was growing faster. It had better assets and better ties with the cloud, with the big cloud giants. Uh, seems like just an obvious, obvious move. Uh, yeah, dude, it got so cheap in the fall of last year for like not like a huge reason. I mean, look, it, I think it was a combination. More, yeah, you're going to need more compute space. You know, if people are going to be buying all these GPUs, where are you going to store them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we need more, more space. You know, they sell, what does Equinix do? They sell space, electricity, and cooling. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's what, that's what those GPUs need. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think it was just a combination of what I said, but also just the market being down on the, the REITs in general. Um, they were still doing better than other types of REITs, like office REITs. Uh, but I think it was just people seeing REIT and just not being really interested in the name, regardless of what kind of REIT it was. All right. Number four, one that I know you will resonate well with is called the sleep test. This is really short for me. Life's too short to be owning stocks that stress you out, position sizes that, pe- that you don't feel comfortable with. I had, a, see, when I had a lot of people come up to me at the meetup and go, how do you sleep at night with Constellation Software making up 55% of your portfolio? And for me, it could be 100% and I'd still <laughs> pass the sleep test. That, that conviction has been built up over a long, long time and, and them doing things that, that give me a lot of confidence. But if, if that was just handed on to someone else who doesn't understand the business, that would not pass the sleep test. And so uh, don't be owning position sizes or, or even just 
businesses at all that don't make you feel happy because life's too short to be stressing out about your investment portfolio. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised I didn't get that question or people saying it for Bitcoin because for me, it's a pretty significant portion too, but I'm like that too. I understand it well and I'm comfortable with it. Um, it's not as high as a percentage. I think it's around like now like 19, 18, 19%, but I'm comfortable with that. But no one asked me about it. So I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised, but um Maybe we have more Bitcoiners than we think listening to this podcast. Yeah, I guess so, right? They're like, oh, I, mine's, mine's bigger. Um, no, well, I mean, like, yeah. it's a good point, right? Because that's not a new position for you. No, exactly. It's not like, it's not like you just, oh, I'm really loving this Bitcoin thing. Let me buy 20% of my net worth in it. That's just reckless. Yeah, so for me, this stress, uh, the sleep test, I mean... I kind of approach it with like a philosophical kind of point of view here because obviously stress can affect a lot of areas of your life in really negative ways. I think, you know, I'm not a medical professional or anything like that, but I know there's countless studies showing that, um, you know, I've seen my dad have a heart attack. Uh, I think it was like 20 years ago because the main culprit here was stress. And obviously, if you're losing sleep over it and if I'm losing sleep over it, it probably means either I need to sell that position or at the very least trim it if I still like the company. And for me, at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. I invest to create a better life for myself, my family in the future. But if I'm getting stressed out about the position, it kind of defeats that purpose. So that's how I see it. Maybe it won't be the right decision and that position will keep growing. But at the end of the day, if it's stressing me out, I'm definitely I'm very comfortable with trimming or selling a position, even if, you know, it ends up giving great returns going forward because it just made sense for me from uh, just a well-being perspective. Well put. All right. Number five egregious valuation multiples. If you are lucky enough to own a stock that goes parabolic uh, <clears throat> when you owned Teladoc, the <laughs> multiples become disconnected from reality. It's not a bad idea to take some chips off the table. And trust me, th this is a hard one for me because I really try not to sell winners for no reason. But if the valuation has far surpassed reasonable expectations, I'm certainly open to it. And I own stocks that have had huge run-ups here in 2023 and are very expensive, but they are not into absurd valuation territory. I was loading up on Intuitive Surgical uh, in the low 200s, high 100s, and it just blew out earnings yesterday. It's like 450 or something. Where are we at? Uh, it was, uh, okay, it's at 350. And so, yeah, we're at roughly 350. And so that's only a few months, right? And that stock was trading at frothy, frothy multiples, uh, when I bought it in the, in the, in the lows of 2022. I'm expecting this stock to be, uh, very highly valued given its quality. But it, it, it feels like it's moving. It, Shopify is another example where it feels like it's moving back into egregious valuation territory. And so they become questions for me of like, can I map out good returns from here? Again, that's not saying I'm selling either of those positions, but it crosses my, it begins to cross my mind when I see things trading at, 80 times next year's like gross margin, like gross profit, <laughs> not even, not even, uh, you know, net free cash flow. So that's something to consider. Here's an example Aurora Cannabis traded at 215 times next year's forecasted sales growth and the legalization of cannabis. 100x the three out sales number, the three years out sales number let alone profit, which was non-existent. Turns out, Zion, there's some execution risk here. And clearly, these businesses are, are zombies of themselves right now. This is a, a reckless way to invest. And if you're trying to make money consistently, uh, 
exiting that position was clearly my suggestion to these individuals who I am close with that owned cannabis at 215 times next year's sales. Uh, of course, that fell on deaf ears when it goes up every single day for for three months on end. But the party does end. So, um, yeah, anything to add there? I mean, those valuation make uh, Teladoc sound pretty cheap when it was at a peak. <laughs> it was trading what, like, I think 30 times sales or something like that. So compared to that, uh, yeah, really cheap. But no, I agree with that. That's why I ended up. I'm tra- pretty sure they bought Livongo at yeah. like oh, 30 yeah. times. They bought it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's not realize that. Yeah, exactly. Sales. Yeah. Sales. Um, but no, I think for me, that's why I trimmed it. Obviously, in hindsight, I probably should have sold my whole position. But um, I still believed in the company at the time. Um, I thought the Livongo acquisition was expensive. And in hindsight, uh, that definitely held true because they wrote off most of it. Um, but I, I definitely kind of bought what leadership was saying in terms of having that one solution like I talked about earlier not to go into that again um, so that's why I decided to trim and you know I think it's it's good to remind people you don't have to do you know it's not an all or nothing if you still believe in the business then you know just trim a little bit of your position take some profits and if it goes down and you still like the business maybe you just kind of put some back in right there's different options you can do but you you have Hedge your risk definitely a bit, especially when those valuation get into, uh, let's be honest, in bubble territory. That's right. There's a difference between a stock having a huge run up and it becoming a bubble. And and when they're a bubble, it's not that hard to know. <laughs> like the amount of hype sentiment about the stock become completely disconnected from the business, uh, and it, it does become quite obvious from from my view. And some of the AI stocks today exist that same characteristics. Um, and so, of course, you know, we, we're never trying to just sell winners for the sake of taking profits here. I think that that's generally a mistake. But sometimes the egregious multiples no longer pass the sleep test, right? And then they kind of work hand in hand. Yeah. All right. So, uh, a note about selling winners that I want to do here before, um, before you're you have a couple here. How often do you and I hear in person? Uh, I bought this junior miner. It's just an example. I'm down bad on the stock. It's it's now a penny stock. If it just goes up back to where I made where I bought it or halfway to where I bought some arbitrary percentage of back to where they bought it. This is a gigantic mistake. Probably like one of the most elementary mistakes you can possibly make. Investment returns on a go forward basis don't give a shit about your price anchor. It doesn't care about you bought the stock at 10 bucks and now it's worth 50 cents. Because the stock was bought at 10. The business is worth nothing. It's heading into bankruptcy or strategic. Uh, <laughs> it's heading into strategic. Strategic review. It's heading into strategic review. That's such a uh, PR word, by the way. Oh, That's yeah. like such oh, yeah. PR. Yeah. 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 Or, or PR BS. Who's counting? Uh, it, it has no bearing on future returns from this point forward, from right now. And there's no logic to this. Oh, I'm just going to sell it at, you know, half of what I bought for. It's a completely behavioral investing bias that needs to be avoided at all costs. Let's go through an example. If you have $1,000 in a stock that used to be worth 10000 so you're down 90% that math, ask yourself, if it was just in cash, would you go back into that position? Would you expect better returns from that position that you currently hold in this junior mining company uh, that you made a mistake on or a high quality business or an index fund from this point forward? That's the conversation to have internally rather than some arbitrary price anchor because that makes no sense on math and, uh, and, and the market doesn't care that you bought it at 10 bucks and now it's worth 20 cents. It just doesn't care. Uh, so I see this too often, and uh, it's a mistake that t- comes up time and time again. 
Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to go with a little bit of a poker analogy here just because I've seen, like, I played a lot of poker in my life, whether it was online or in person. And one thing that you see a lot of people doing is they get into this mindset that they're pot committed into a certain hand. So just pot committed for those who are not familiar with poker just means that, you know, you've invested a lot of your chips in this current hand. And some people will say, okay, if you put like 50% or even two thirds of your chips regardless of what's happening you should be willing to put the rest of your chips in which you know as a general rule it's probably not a bad thing because for the most part you're rarely you know drawing dead meaning that you don't have any ways of winning it's pretty rare that this happens but sometimes i mean the writing will be on the wall and it's clear that you may have a less than five percent chance and you're better off folding and using the remaining chips especially if you're in a tournament where you cannot rebuy and using those on a hand in the future because you're gonna have better expected value or better returns on that so i think you know anyone familiar with poker will be able to relate with that and the way i try to see it for me is just expected value so basically expected value is just assigning probabilities on different types of outcome and then you think you know for example let's say i you know i'm looking at the at apple stock and this is just an example so don't add me saying it doesn't make sense um I, and i just assign different variables so i could say there's 25 percent chance it'll go to 400 dollars 25 percent chance it'll go to 200 40 percent chance it'll go down to 125 and 10 percent chance something catastrophic happens and it goes down to 50 dollars and then you just multiply those the prices by the percentage that you assign to each and then the sum of it will give you the expected value and obviously this is a simplified way of just explaining it you should have a good reasoning behind these various outcomes and it's not a you know it's not a perfect science it's going to be objectives and your projection on where you think the company will go but this is just an example to say that you know are you expecting overall bet you know good or better returns on that stock you currently own right now or is another company or another investment better returns i am the worst for that in poker the pot <laughs> the pot, pot what did yeah. you call it pot, pot committed. commitment pot, pot, pot committed. committed yeah i get so this dude i i have a fatal flaw in that game of poker i'm actually pretty good at poker it's like i i, I know cards and i know math okay but oh <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. do I get pot committed? Uh, yeah, if I'll, if I'm going into the end and I've already used all my chips, I can't back down from that fight. Yeah, I might have like, you know, a pair of kings, and it's not looking very good, yeah. but I'm going for it. Well, that's a pretty common thing in poker is people get hypnotized by starting with like a pair of aces or kings or especially aces, yeah. and then you know the board will come out and. If you're anyone else in the hand and you're not playing, everyone can say, okay, like aces would be completely crushed here. Like there's no chance it's good. Like literally yeah. there's like, you know, you need one card to make a flush type of deal and you don't have it yeah, with your aces. Exactly. But people get so hypnotized by the aces. And I think you can relate that to investing where you may have a really good company that you invest in. You invested in a couple of years ago and then there's a complete shift in the business and then the writing's on the wall. But you know, you're maybe back to one of our early points is that you're so stuck on your initial assessment that you don't want to sell the company. Have you ever tried to count cards or try to learn? Uh, no, I, I mean, I know the principles behind it. I mean, I looked into it just for fun, but it's it's pretty complex and um, you almost need a team to be able to do it well. So you it needs to be more than one. Yeah. I went down a YouTube rabbit hole like... <laughs> literally yesterday about counting cards and it looks like intense the teams they form all this stuff like and it's like borderline illegal but like not really yeah i mean it's uh, not it's but it's fun. the casinos don't like it so if they the notice you're doing like it, it um you know you probably will not have a good night that night but yeah people it's for blackjack so i think blackjack they have like 10 decks you know, in one kind of shoe right. that they call. So it's really, that's why it gets really complex. It's not like it you have hard. one deck to account. Yeah. Yeah. If it's one deck, then they, they would, people would clean the casinos out. But uh, yeah. All right. Last one here. 
Yeah, so the last one here is time. So I think uh, people may think, okay, why are you selling because of time? Well, you know, I don't know about you, Brayden, but my life is way different than it was five years ago. Things change, and I just don't have the same amount of time to dedicate to, you know, owning individual companies and the work that's required and the time that's required to stay on top of it. Uh, for example, you know, I wasn't co-hosting a podcast five years ago. I didn't have a daughter. I didn't own a house. I was renting. I can probably talk. Any, did you have any gray in that beard? Uh, I think it was starting, maybe. I had more hair, that's for sure. <laughs> I, yeah. I had more hair, that's for sure. Um, but it just goes to show that a lot of things change, and that's normal. Life changes, you know, you get older, things change. And my point here is that five years ago, I would have had no problem keeping up with 20-plus stocks in my portfolio. But now, if I'm being really honest with myself, I just don't have the time to stay on top of more than 15 individual companies. So to me, that's a very valid reason to sell a position. Obviously, it gets tricky when you have to go through your portfolio and deciding which position to sell because it's a bit harder. Um, you have to essentially go position by position. And I think just make a list of you know, all your top holdings in terms of conviction and then the ones that end up near the bottom of the list, then um, you end up selling. And that's what I did. So I sold the ones that were more at the bottom of my list so I could focus on the companies that had the most conviction in and, you know, still assign some money to index funds. I think it's a really good alternative, which requires not a lot of times and investment compared to individual companies. I have been ranking my conviction on portfolio companies for years and years now. And I try to match the position size with that conviction. And if I see just the one just slipping, slipping, slipping down, and it's at the bottom of the list, you're right. I, I, I think, you know, we talked about life's too short to be uh, uh, stressed out with a stock. Life's also too, too short to be managing 40 different individual positions. Uh, the, the time requirement for that is... Net net doesn't outweigh the benefit of just owning an S and P index fund and enjoying everything else, <laughs> not 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 spending a second. Yeah, I've heard people in the investing space saying you should own thirty to fifty, and I don't know. I think realistically, if you're owning like let's say the top end there, like fifty stocks. Um, I don't think anyone can really stay on top of all 50 names. I'm not saying they don't know the 50 names decently well, but it's so easy to, you know, that position that's gone down to 0.5% of your portfolio. I mean, I've heard people saying like, oh, I actually forgot I had that company. And that's probably a good indication that if you forgot you had it, you might want to consider... Um, either adding to it if you still like it or selling it or selling something else. Yeah. Yeah. Changing your focus a little bit uh, makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm not totally convinced uh, if you have an equal weighted 50 stock portfolio that there is enough alpha generation to justify the time commitment, right? Like, and, and alpha generation is a, for those listening at home. And not familiar with the terms, a very fancy tool, a fancy word for beating the market. So if you're if you're not if you're not generating enough beating of the market to own fifty stocks, I can't I can't justify it personally. All right, let's go to the strategic review. Strategic review. We've been talking about it. People are probably excited now. So uh, for those like so yeah, like we mentioned, Laurentian Bank is doing a strategic review according to their official press release. And for those not familiar with Laurentian Bank, I mean, if you're outside of Quebec, um, you may have heard the name, but you're probably not overly familiar. A bit like Canadian Western Bank, right? Um, Canadian Western Bank is more in the West. Um, I think they have some branches in Ontario, but I think it's typically Alberta and BC. Uh, but Laurentian Bank ticker lb.to and it primarily operates in quebec but has some commercial and business banking outside of quebec laurentian bank confirmed last week that it was undergoing that strategic review following a report from the globe and mail saying the bank was up for sale once that came out the stock was up like it was crazy it was up like 30 percent. did you see that it went up like 
yeah, if you do like over the last two weeks, you'll see a pop at some point. That's when the news mm. came out of the strategic right. review. Um, Laurentian Bank. Because, it, because people are seeing that like the equity can be saved essentially. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, they've been beleaguered, not necessarily beleaguered, but definitely facing some challenges for quite some time now, and I'll go over that. Um, but Laurentian Bank is currently the ninth largest bank in Canada, and according to that Globe and Mail article, what has spurred the strategic review would have been the fact that they receive a bid from a rival bank, but it was mostly from anonymous sources, so take that with a grain of salt. And Laurentian Bank hired J.P. Morgan Chase as a legal advisor uh, well, sorry, and a legal advisor, J.P. Morgan, for those not aware, they ran the sale of HSBC Canada uh, last year to RBC. And I think that sale is still pending uh, regulatory approval. And Laurentian is currently in the midst of a turnaround plan that was launched in December of 2021 on their investor day, which included the launch of LBC Digital, a personal digital banking platform. And they've been struggling since 2017 when it was uncovered that they had originated mortgages that were later sold to a third party, which had borrowers that were misrepresented. So that's not great because essentially it questions the quality of credit for those borrowers. So that's why the, um, and their underwriting practices, uh, banks will do that. Sometimes or financial institution, they might originate the mortgage, but then they'll sell it to a third party. It's very common in the US as well. Um, so that, that obviously has been weighing on the stock. And since the start of 2017, until this announcement of a possible sale, Laurentian had a negative 20% total returns compared to 50% for TD and 110% for National Bank. Uh, so it's not been the <laughs> not been the best uh, re- performing bank stock in Canada, that's for sure. And for those thinking, oh, it's just a tiny bank, yeah, yeah you've, the- you've net you've net lost money year over year after the div that's pretty yeah. tough yeah and i think a lot of people were probably chasing that dividend uh, unfortunately that's probably what happened or believing in the turnaround plan which i think they've somewhat they're still in the midst of it but they've a- accomplished some of the things that they were saying they would do and for context here Laurentian Bank has 50 billion dollars in assets which is definitely dwarfed by Canada's big banks for the smallest of them is National Bank at 417 billion in assets Um, so just to give context here it's a it's a relatively small bank and if we look at the U.S. right the Silicon Valley Bank for example I think they were at uh, what was it 250 billion when the collapse happened that sounds about right. Yeah. So uh, even that sounds a little high, maybe. I think it was around sure. there. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big stock for sure. It yeah. Was, so it just had goes a historic to... run up for about three years before its demise. Yeah, and just goes to show that even our regional banks are not like they're not that small in Canada, but um, it's not part of the big banks. And I was also curious, so I looked at their deposits because that's something I think everyone should take note at the deposit flow for a bank if they own the stock. And they were down 4% from January to April of this year, but up 5% on a year-over-year basis. So I think that's, um, you know, that's not too bad. I think that's something I would keep an eye on. Their net interest margin has actually been pretty stable over the last 18 months. It's been hovering between 1.77% and 1.88%, but it looks like it might be trending down. And their CT1 ratio, which is just a ratio that shows how liquid a bank is uh, and its capacity to be able to absorb losses on that can happen really quickly, that's at 9.3%. It is lower than the big bank. But it is, you know, it's normal for a smaller regional bank like Laurentian Bank here. And from a profit standpoint, it's been up and down for the company. They were significantly down um, in the past couple of years. In 2021, they were a dollar per share in EPS and it came back up to $5 in 2022 and trailing trail 12 months, it's $4.7. So it's not, I mean, overall, I think it's kind of... 
you know, up and down for Laurentian Bank. It's not like they're they're firing all cylinders here. And the last couple of things I'll mention is their loan loss provisions, like other banks, have definitely increased um, quite a bit in recent quarters. But one thing that I noticed when I was looking at their most recent financial statements is their loan loss provision increased three basis points as a percentage from 15 basis point to 18 basis point. It might not sound like a lot, but it's a 20 percent increase. So it's not the dollar increase, but that's the amount they put aside for their total loans. Um, so that's a pretty, I know it's just three basis points, but when you're going from 15 to 18, that's a quite significant increase in loan loss provision. So I don't know if there's some um, trouble brewing on the horizon. I mean, they're a bank. Uh, we know the pressures that the banks are facing right now in the current environment. Uh, but the other thing too, in terms of suitors, probably looking at one of the larger Canadian banks. Um, I was reading an interesting article as we were preparing for this from Andrew Wellis from the Global Mail again, uh, where they're handicapping the race for Laurentian Bank. And essentially, it looks like there's just a couple of potential soothers. I think TD would be an interesting one because they had their takeover bid from a U.S. regional bank that fell through. The name's escaping me. But aside from that, I mean, that was a that was a few billion uh, or something right yeah exactly so it would be i think the the purchase cost from what i i seen would probably be around 1.52 billion for laurentian so td would definitely have the funds some of the other banks royal bank is had 13 billion set aside for the acquisition of first horizon Mm -hmm. corp yeah exactly it's first horizon i was uh I was forgetting the name, but uh, the article essentially says Royal Bank, it's unlikely because they're still trying to close the HSBC acquisition, which, you know, I'm not sure it would look great from regulators as they're also trying to gobble up uh, Laurentian Bank. And also the HSBC was $13.5 billion, so it's a lot of capital. Uh, some of the banks may also be reluctant to issue equity, for example, if they don't have enough cash on the books to be able to meet their liquidity ratios, so they would have to get financial financing somehow and most likely equity cibc has had its issues with regulators so it's a bit it's unlikely bank of montreal has made a big acquisition in 2021 with the uh, bank of the west in the u.s so i think they're arguing that it's unlikely as well bank of nova scotia has a new ceo and they're trying to right size their business so that's another one where it could be a bit more questionable. And then there's National Bank, but National Bank has a big presence in Quebec. So in terms of the synergies, we'll have to see. So it really leaves TD and the other player, potentially Desjardins, but Desjardins also has a massive presence already in Quebec. So whether it makes sense for them. So to me, it would probably be a bank that's looking to uh, broaden their pres- presence in Quebec, uh, not necessarily one that already has a very established presence there. Yeah, I like this overview. It, I, I don't have any major hot takes about Laurentian Bank or or who's going to be the best suitor for this. What I do have is an is a important takeaway here. You've plotted the performance of Laurentian, TD, and National side-by-side side on a total return basis. So that includes the dividend. And I saw... On the Twitterverse, (laughs) many, many Canadian income seekers, you know, the the fire types, the dividend income types all over Laurentian Bank for the past five years, hyping it up, talking about, you know, adding to it on every single dip. (laughs) Hey, Sion, it keeps dipping. You know, you keep adding on every single dip and just completely blind to the fact that the business is subpar against the other banks. And this is an example of my sell philosophy that I talked about, which was number three, an opportunity to own the best. What are you doing messing around with junky stuff? You lost money holding it for 10 years while it paid you like a 7.5% dividend. It's not guaranteed money just because they pay you out in cash if the equity loses you know, 10% a year. Net net, you've caggered negative three percent, three point three percent of the last ten years, to be exact. And so, this is an opportunity. This is an example where chasing yield and being blind to the business fundamentals. When you see that those dividend checks hit your your brokerage account, is 
honestly, probably one of the most rookie investing strategies I've ever seen. And you see it everywhere, especially in Canada, who are just dividend obsessed, dividend like injected in my injected in my veins type strategy. Uh, it's a it's a pretty good way to lose money, from my view. Yeah, exactly. And I I don't think there's anything wrong if someone made the assessment like it's a good turnaround play. They'll assess. They'll put a small por- portion of their portfolio. You know you're banking on the turnaround whether it works out or not depending on your timing you might actually be up on the the stock right because it really kind of crashed after 2020 and then that that turnaround plan i think i was mentioning came in in 2021 but you know there's a difference between putting a position there and continue adding to it when the progress is not necessarily going as well as you'd expect. Um, so I think that's something to, to keep in mind. But I will also put that article from um, Andrew Willis from the Globe and Mail because obviously I just want to give him credit. I had a quick look through the article. Those were the big points and kind of put in also my my take on it too. Uh, but it's, I mean, it'll be interesting what happens. Um, one thing too that does raise some questions is why why now because a lot of the banks are not necessarily you know their financial positions are not as good as they had been in the last previous you know let's say six months to a year ago prior to that so there's some questions in terms of why does it make sense for them to go now and Typically, you know, mergers and acquisition happening in the middle of summer, they're not as frequent too. So that's another thing that you kind of wonder. So maybe there's some more worrisome underlying uh, reason that they're doing this that obviously we're not privy to but uh, something to keep an eye on. It'll be really interesting and whoever steps up, you know, what regulators will have to say too. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Canadian Investor Podcast. We're so happy that you're here on Mondays and Thursdays. If you have not checked out our Patreon page where you can see Simone's got a little beautiful, sexy graph on the on the screen right now. He's got uh, yes. his the Canadian Investor Podcast logo in the back of his screen. I uh, have bedheads. Uh, but nice summer glow, but with bad head, but with the summer glow, you can see it on video on our Patreon at jointci.com. And then always pinned at the top is our latest portfolio updates. We talked about positions we've bought and sold through the years. Makes it sound like we sell stocks all the time uh, from today's episode. We're looking at like a, you know, eight, nine, 10 year period that all those positions have been sold uh, on. So it's it's very, very low per- portfolio turnover. And to see that in action, it's always pinned to the top. For subscribers of jointci.com for the ripe price of $9 Canadian. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.